0: The startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is The Paint of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm with Stephen for our Pain of Scale series. And today, well, 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 pardon the pun, another well of information, another well of knowledge. They're so good. We keep asking them back a guest from Profitwell. So, Stephen, please introduce us to the topic. I guess it's
1: pricing and to yeah, our Yeah, yeah, you're right there. It's not hard <laughs> to guess, is it? I mean, obviously, the Profitwell guys do a lot of amazing work. Yeah. About, you know, really helping companies understand how to address churn and how to maximize growth and increase retention through their technology platforms. On. But today we're diving into one of our favorite topics, pricing. Pricing, packaging, monetization strategies. This is a critical topic for SaaS companies, to honest any company at any stage, but particularly for SaaS, because it's a recurring revenue business. And you know, when they want to really think about how to maximize revenue growth, retention and expansion, you know, pricing and monetization is one of the strongest levers they can pull. Yeah. Very few companies kind of exercise that muscle. I mean, we've heard from Patrick before and Peter and Lily on a previous episode about how little time companies spend working on pricing. So we're going to be diving into that topic and I'm um, delighted that today we've got Rob Littest. Rob is a pricing strategist at ProperWell. He's worked on hundreds of pricing strategies for SaaS companies, large and small. And he also writes a really interesting weekly newsletter called Good, Better, Best, which packages up case studies of SaaS companies and other subscription businesses. And uses real world examples to give some really interesting insights. And and actually that's how I discovered him. And then I pinged Patrick and said, Patrick Campbell, for those people who don't know him, is an incredible resource for anybody learning about pricing. And so what we're going to be digging into with Rob is some innovative transformational pricing strategies, some of the strategies behind some of the biggest successes in tech and in SaaS. We're going to be talking about some value metrics, we're going to be talking about strategies to drive network effects and referrals, premium that drives adoption, monetization strategies from premium to revenue, strategies to maximize net retention. So no pressure, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) whatsoever. There's a lot to cover. But thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and super excited to be here with you guys. So let's just start with some pricing fundamentals. You know, we've been educated about value drivers, but I think it's always useful to go back to value metrics in pricing. What are they and why are they so important?
0: Yeah, when we're thinking about pricing and packaging strategy, we're typically talking about differentiating packages based on two things, right? It's usually consumption-driven differentiation and capability-driven differentiation. So capabilities would be things like features, you know, you see your traditional packaging strategy and there'll be advanced features and and different differentiators within each package. But then on the other side is consumption and value metrics are really kind of the underpinning of a consumption-based pricing and packaging strategy. We define it at ProfitWell as what and how you charge for your solution. Probably the most popular, but most well-known value metric is probably users. Like if you think about like Salesforce, they charge per user, tons of solutions charge per user. But it's really interesting to look throughout the market in SaaS and see some of the other things people are doing there.
1: Yeah. And I like the thought of the consumption metric because it's how people use. And obviously with the important thing of SaaS is they continue to use and they grow how they use. So I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. But who does this best?
0: I think HubSpot, which is a company that I actually spent about four years at a few years back. I think HubSpot does a great job. So their primary value metric is contacts. And for those that aren't familiar with HubSpot, They've evolved since. They are a very holistic solution now. But back in the day when I worked there, they were really a kind of integrated marketing suite. And contacts was essentially the size of your email database. And they put together this entire... Kind of methodology around why contacts are important and how contacts are essentially leads. Leads can become opportunities, opportunities can become customers, customers can become promoters. And so they tied contacts into this much bigger value equation that ultimately ended up in more revenue and growth for your company. And I think that really kind of helped customers understand that contacts are really a proxy for this revenue growth that you can achieve with HubSpot. And I was on the sales side over there during the sales process. You'd start to see prospects eyes light up about how many contacts they can generate and what that might mean for downstream revenue and downstream growth. The other thing that we look for in, in value metrics, there are kind of three rules that we think about at ProfitWell. and first of all, it has to be aligned with customer goals. So contacts is right on the money there. It has to be easy to understand. So contacts, obviously super easy to understand. Once you understand that it's really just kind of an email address or the size of your email list. And then it has to grow with the customer. So they put together this entire methodology to show how as contacts grow, your business should be growing and it should follow suit. So I think HubSpot does a really great job of kind of using this value metric that is kind of a proxy for what people are hoping to achieve through the platform.
1: That's a really good three-step kind of mechanism to really help people to think about how they find that value driver. But can you dig down into how a company that may be not pricing in that way could really establish what that value driver
0: is? Absolutely. I think one of the first things you can do is just kind of look at the usage for your customers and just see how they use the product. Anytime we're working with a company on developing a value metric for profit well, we kind of think about two things, right? We think about, okay, what do people actually want to be charged by? And then we also think about which value metric possibilities actually scale with willingness to pay. So those are kind of the two things we look for. And one thing that I think some companies we talk to consider as a value metric is storage. A lot of SaaS companies obviously, you know, are storing customer data and and storing a lot of data in different ways. I think storage can be a successful value metric for a company like Dropbox or something like that, that is specializing in storage. But I think it's really important as a SaaS company to understand what your customers are trying to get from your solution and aligning the value metric with that outcome, right? So a company like HubSpot, I think a value metric like storage, while they might be storing customer data and customer information, I don't really think it aligns super well with their solution and what they're trying to do. And it'd be the same thing for something like Salesforce, right? You want to align your value metric with the value that your customers are actually getting out of your solution and make it really intuitive to understand as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And the interesting thing for me is you've got to exercise that muscle of asking and understanding, pulling that information from your customers, from all the research, from all the data. You know, make sure you're not guessing. You need to really have the discovery process going constantly.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I would say like the two things that companies can do right away are first of all, do customer interviews to gauge which value people actually like and and what customer preferences actually tend to be around that. And then also just pour over customer data, right? And, And look at those usage metrics and get a better understanding of which metrics are really kind of scaling as customers are growing. I think a lot of the time that kind of scaling with growth is much more important than customer preference, but obviously you want to consider what customers consider to be the most appropriate metric as well.
1: Thank you. Let's change tack slightly. And this is a really relevant one, I think, and has been over the last month's coronavirus crisis, which is freemium versus free trial. First of all, let's start with what's the difference before we get into an example. Yeah,
0: so we talk about freemium and free trials kind of in the context of free, right? So there are really kind of three key ways that we talk about freemium and free trials. There's a perpetual free plan, which is a freemium version of a product that the plan is always free, right? It's usually limited in some way, whether that's usage or capabilities, but it's a perpetually free plan that somebody can use. There's a faux free freemium plan, which is a free plan that a lot of the time will give access to most of the solution, but it'll cap usage at a certain level. So this would be like for a company that might limit like their free plan to one user or if it's say a HubSpot or something like that, you're only allowed to send a thousand emails a month or something like that. It's a free plan and you're limited by this certain usage metric. And then there are free trials, right? So a free trial is typically going to give you access to the whole solution for a limited amount of time. And the way that we think about it is, first of all, freemium is an acquisition strategy, not really a monetization strategy. It's really kind of a way to play the long game. And you have to be pretty comfortable with delaying monetization there. And also you have to have some drivers internally to get people to upgrade eventually. And free trial, we think about is being really, really useful when you have a solution that is super sticky, right? And after a certain amount of time, people really aren't going to want to let go of that information. And I hate to keep coming back to HubSpot, but they had a great free trial while I was there. They would get these marketers to use the tool in the database and start tracking what their customers were doing. And after 30 days, these marketers were getting visibility to things that they had absolutely never seen before, and they just didn't want to give it up. And it was just a great way for us to really prove value within a certain time frame and accelerate the sales cycle. And I think it ended up being a great reason why HubSpot you know, grew so quickly. But yeah, I think those would be kind of the key differentiators right there. It's freemium is a plan that's free essentially forever or up until a certain amount of usage and a free trial is really kind of gated by time.
1: You did a really interesting recent analysis of Zoom and they've exploded into their global consciousness during 2020. And you talked in particular about the faux freemium strategy that gives users unlimited use for 40 minutes. Why is that so powerful and what do you think other companies can learn from this?
0: I think they just made a genius decision in how to differentiate their free plan. You know, the thing about video conferencing is it's kind of a commodity, right? Like if you think about like we have FaceTime on our phones for free, there are a bunch of different video conferencing tools. It's not really a solution like we were just talking about how HubSpot was so sticky A video conferencing tool doesn't really have that kind of like loss aversion associated with it. If you lose your video conferencing tool, you'll just move on to the next solution, right? Like you can just kind of jump into a different video conferencing tool and it's not really any love lost. So I think freemium is the right choice for them. And they made a great decision to apply either a free trial or freemium. And then it was, do we go perpetual free or do we go faux free? And if they had gone perpetual free, they probably would have gone with a really, really limited edition of the product. And so what they ended up doing is is this faux free approach where they capped the meetings you could have on the free plan at 40 minutes. And I think what they did an amazing job of that a lot of other companies can internalize and, and put into practice is they looked out at the market and saw what other companies were doing and looked for an area that they could exploit, right? So when they released their freemium plan, I think the main competitors in video conferencing were mainly doing freemium. I think like GoToMeeting was doing a free trial, but Cisco, WebEx, JoinMe, and Skype were all doing freemium plans. And all of them were limiting their free plans based on participants. And in a lot of cases, limiting the participants so much as almost to make the solution unusable. Right. So they were really kind of like constraining the wrong usage metric there. I think like WebEx particularly had a limit of three participants per meeting, which is unless you're doing kind of like a one-on-one or something like that, you're not really going to be able to use that for your company to get people familiar with WebEx. So I think what Zoom did is they looked at this kind of state of the market and understood all of the competitors here are just dating users and nobody can get a real sense for their solution. Let's go in. I think like all their engineers and a lot of their company came from WebEx as well. And so they really understood the market. They understood the pain points and they have a great product, which obviously helps. But they said, listen, like, let's give people this holistic experience of really how you might use Zoom. I think they did limit users, but they gave a limit of like 50. So for the most part, you could use their free tool for any meeting that you would need to do, except for, say, like a company all hands or something like that and they allowed people to use it as much as they wanted within 40 minutes and i think what they did was so so smart is you know eventually a customer is going to need a minute more than 40 minutes right so they knew that that constraint would eventually be too limiting and that people would upgrade. So they didn't really risk cannibalization there because they knew essentially when they would get customers to sign on, they would eventually purchase the paid version of the platform so that they could break through that 40-minute limit.
1: It's a great example, isn't it, of how a monetization strategy can play such a pivotal role in customer acquisition. Yes, great tech, but really it's the the strategy, the monetization strategy that really allowed it to explode.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I think that was absolutely critical for them and, and really, really drove their growth. If you look at how much they grew, they just absolutely skyrocketed. And I think a ton of that is due to that monetization
1: strategy. Another great example is Notion on Namesake. You described their pricing page, I think it was an interesting word, the most empathetic. You say, what do you mean by that? and Why is it important?
0: I think I got that word from Paul Graham in his book, Hackers and Painters. He talks about how engineers need to be empathetic in designing products. And, you know, when you start to think about it, it makes a ton of sense. If you're thinking with the user in mind and with the user's experience, and you're thinking with empathy, then you're going to build a product that's easier to use and that people like to use more, right? And I think that's such a problem with so many software solutions is... Like the developers believe that they have these incredible capabilities and are building this tool that's amazing to them, but it might not necessarily be great for the actual users. And so I was thinking about that in the context of a pricing page and we see pricing pages all the time and and look at them constantly. And there's so many kind of like intangibles of pricing pages that are really important. You want to have a, a pricing page that's really easy to read and easy to navigate and at the end of the day, you want people to be able to visit your pricing page and be able to understand which plan is right for them within, say, 20 seconds. And that's really what I meant by empathetic when I described Notion's pricing page. You can literally go to that page and, and understand which package is right for you in about 10 seconds.
1: I can see that. I can picture the page in my mind, and it's just so simple and straightforward.
0: Oh, it's great.
1: And, and they've got the great New
0: Yorker cartoon vibe. They, they've, got a lot, they've got a lot going for the Notion. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful pricing page and super easy to
1: navigate. They did something interesting didn't they? Because they downgraded, they kind of shifted the whole pricing plan to the left. They moved their entry-level pay plan to freemium. And I mean, you know, talking about delayed gratification, this is way more than that. I know you said delayed monetization, but they must have cannibalized quite a bit of revenue. So what's going on there? A hundred percent. Yeah, this was such an interesting move to me. And I think it's all
0: kind of related to what we've been talking about. Delayed monetization, hundred percent. I think it's super clear. Notion is playing the long game here, and I was thinking about it in the context of Evernote. Then Evernote, you would think about notes. In Notion, you think about blocks, and they're essentially these little units that you can build in with Notion. But you know, it's very Notion centric, very Notion specific a new customer might not necessarily know what a block is it's it's not necessarily the most understandable thing even if you've been using the tool it's not super understandable what a block constitutes and I know when Notion was getting really big and, and they were getting really hot, people were complaining about this block limit and a, a lot of Evernote customers were talking about how they really wanted to try Notion, but they had these thousands and thousands of notes within Evernote and they knew that if they ported it over, they would have this 1000 block limit and they would far exceed that and they wouldn't be able to use a free plan. They didn't want to start paying right off the bat. They wanted an easy way to use a solution without paying. And so I think what Notion was doing is is they, first of all, got rid of that and just said, listen, we're just going to commoditize personal usage of our platform and just get as many people in and grow market share as much as possible and just get people using Notion, get people used to using the tool, and we're going to monetize in the enterprise. We're going to monetize the collaboration tools, the aspects where people are kind of sharing work and working on documents within Notion together. I think what that does is it puts a ton of pressure on their competition right? So they're, they're essentially just giving away the personal version of the platform. They do, they do have a paid version called personal pro, I was using their $4 a month package. And then when they ended up changing the price and giving away for free, I automatically got upgraded to Personal Pro, but I didn't need any of those features. So I ended up personally downgrading. But at the end of the day, I use Notion at work as well. And I think what they're relying on is that people are just going to get so familiar with Notion in their personal life and just get so used to it that when there are conversations internally at the office about what's the best tool for knowledge management and organization, enough Notion users are going to come to the forefront and say, hey, this tool is amazing. I'm I'm just using it. So it's kind of that consumer-driven approach to growing in the enterprise. And I know Slack has done a great job. Dropbox has done a great job of that as well. But yeah, a huge move that I think probably had immediate revenue cannibalization for them, for sure. But I think in the long run, it's going to work out really well for them.
1: That was really, really interesting. And I think it's just so fascinating to think about how to use pricing and monetization to drive demand in a very almost counterintuitive way. And I think that's really exciting. One of the biggest things that we're looking at with quite a few of our portfolio companies is the increasing importance of referrals in the customer acquisition process, because, you know, a lot of traditional lead generation devices are kind of drying up. And we've all learned about kind of reinfection rates in 2020. And I think about that with software companies as well. If I can get my reinfection rate for every customer I win greater than one, so every customer I win generates another customer, you've got an explosive business, haven't you? Have you got any examples of people who are doing that well? Yeah, you know, I think there are a couple ways to to
0: look at referrals in B2B. There's kind of like a pure referral program, which I know like Dropbox had an amazing referral program where if you refer new users, you would get free storage. And I think within B2B, the best way to drive referrals is probably to give value to your current customers whether it's a free month or, you know, free amount of usage or or whatever it might be. But then I also kind of think like integrations are almost like productizing referrals, right? Like I think back to HubSpot again, we had this integration with Salesforce that was a massive growth vehicle for HubSpot. And it was a, a way for Salesforce customers to learn about HubSpot. And you know, before HubSpot had a CRM and they became kind of a direct competitor for Salesforce, the Salesforce team was very open to referring customers to HubSpot if they had marketing needs. So that, that's definitely one way to kind of productize referrals, I think. One of my favorite referral programs I've ever seen is actually for the Morning Brew newsletter, which I think they just crossed 2 million subscribers recently. And again, this is a super kind of consumer referral program. It's something that I think companies can really steal from, especially as the lines blur between software and media companies and B2B and B2C companies. But Morning Brew has like, I think, seven or eight stages to their referral program. The first stage, if you refer three people, you end up getting this exclusive Sunday newsletter that's their kind of premium newsletter. And then up from there, it's, it's all different types of swag, right? So you can get stickers, t t-shirt, a coffee mug. You can get a crew neck if you refer 100 people. So it's it's a really cool way, I think, for people to drive traction among their network and among their friends. And it's propelled their growth to just a crazy level. I mean, 2 million subscribers is is wild. but that's one of my absolute favorites.
1: So we're talking about, obviously, acquisition and how freemium may play an important role in that. But once we've done the initial acquisition, putting aside the importance of keeping a recurring customer is, is the critical importance of revenue expansion. And that captures so much that's good about a SaaS company. You know, if the customers I'm winning, I'm keeping, and they're expanding their revenues, it points to the fact that I'm acquiring good customers, I'm delivering good value, and there's a clear value exchange. You've talked about quite a few companies there. Are there any others that you'd point out who are really good at the revenue expansion?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think one that has been in the news a ton lately and their stock just seems to like double every week is Shopify. So if you look at Shopify's revenue mix over the last 5 years, early on they have kind of, they break it out into two categories. There's subscription revenue and merchant solutions revenue. And over time, the merchant solution revenue has grown to be such a bigger part of the puzzle than their subscription revenue. And I think that's a huge testament to what they've been able to develop outside of just giving their customers a way to create a pretty online store, right? So they have Shopify shipping that people can use. They have Shopify capital, which are essentially small business loans. They have all of these services that people can use with Shopify that allow them to grow with Shopify. And I think the proof is kind of in the pudding and how much merchant solutions revenue they've generated recently. I think in 2015, it was like 50-50 or very close to 50-50 subscription to merchant solutions. And this past earnings report, I think it was almost 75-25 merchant solutions to subscription. So it just tells you how much value they're ultimately driving for their merchants. I think another example would be Datadog. Like Datadog went public, I believe, last year. And they just have a ton of different products under their umbrella and so many cross-selling and upselling opportunities. It's insane. So those are two companies that I think do a really, really good job and, and allow you to kind of expand and grow your usage with them. And it shows up in the net dollar retention that they're ultimately producing.
1: They're great examples. And it also shows up in the ultimate market valuation of those businesses as well, because you know investors and markets put a great store on, on that uh, revenue expansion piece. Any other innovations that you're seeing in in pricing that we could learn from? Yeah, one of the most interesting things that I've been
0: seeing a lot of lately is what I've been kind of referring to as skin in the game pricing. So essentially companies who directly tie their revenue to their customers' revenue. A great example would be Lambda School, which doesn't charge their students anything unless they get a desired job after they finish up with the Lambda School classes. Another example would be Substack, so the newsletter platform. It's completely free until you start paying and then you pay Substack 10%. Patreon does a skin in the game approach as well. They have like varying plans where you can pay a certain percentage of revenue that you're generating. But this is essentially taking the level of ambiguity out of the value metric equation, right? So we were talking about HubSpot earlier and how contacts was kind of a proxy for revenue, but there are definitely a few kind of links in the chain tie- before you get from contacts to revenue, right? And their methodology did a great job of codifying that and making it clear how contacts attach to revenue. But at the end of the day, if you can like shorten that cognitive gap for your customers and just make it super clear that you're only making money if they're making money, I think you have a really, really interesting value proposition. And that's something that I think a lot of companies are adopting and it's only growing more popular. It's really going to be interesting to see how that evolves over
1: time. And if these companies keep that as as kind of their
0: primary way of
1: pricing. There's some great examples there. I love that kind of concept of that we only make money when you make money, which to a great extent is what Shopify is doing. They're driving greater success for their customers. There's actually some really good examples of that in our portfolio. Muse, which is a hotel property management system. They've got a, an incredible range of monetization devices that are based on hotel success and mutual success is a, is a really important part of that. You mentioned Substack. And I think that's where you run your newsletter on as well, don't you? So do you want to tell us a bit about Good Better Best, what it is, how people can find out about it? Absolutely. So
0: I love writing and I love researching. And I started it in January, the newsletter, a way to both explore pricing and packaging strategies that were kind of outside the realm of the current clients that I was working with, and also as a way to be able to kind of take different examples and apply them to the work that we do at ProfitWell. So I started off writing kind of case studies on packaging and every other week I would write a case study and in between that I would, I would write kind of a digest and it's recently kind of evolved to strictly case study. So I basically do a case study every week and I'm exploring a wide range of you know software companies. B to C companies and and really kind of exploring the market and, you know, like I wrote about NBA league pass recently. And then last week I wrote about HubSpot. I've written about MailChimp. So really just kind of jumping all around and, and looking at different pricing and packaging strategies and the impact that it has on the company and, The response has been great. It's been super interesting to hear people's thoughts and I'm really looking forward to diving into some of these kind of innovative packaging strategies we've talked about today and exploring those further in the coming weeks. It's goodbetterbest.substack.com and yeah, I do use Substack and I'm a very happy free customer.
1: It's a good read and there's some great stories and I think it's really useful to take stories from different walks of life because I think if we get too narrow and we're only ever talking B2B, then we, we need to bring in the analogies from other industries and get us to think in a different way. So I, I think it's a really good idea. Very useful. Thank you so Rob, much. it's been fascinating talking to you. Really interesting. And thank you ever so much for agreeing to join us. Same here. It's been great talking to you guys. And thank you all so much for
0: having me. My pleasure. And I will sign up to this newsletter. I promise. <laughs> thank you, Paul. <laughs>
1: <laughs>